Hi, folks. I hope you can stick around and listen to a little music we're going to play for you. So sit back and relax and take off your shoes. Hey, this is Dan Hasseltine. Welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. Have you ever had a good friend tell you that he's been scoring a new, independent, episodic television project, and based on that friend's overall skill and track record, you immediately assume it will be something cool, only to find out that the production is yet another look at Jesus and his disciples, and in that moment, something in your stomach shifts a little bit? Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and when my friend Dan Hasseltine, who is best known as the lead singer and principal lyricist for the band Jars of Clay, told me that he was scoring the crowd-funded media project The Chosen, I was happy for him, and I was even more impressed that Dallas Jenkins, the producer, writer, and director behind the top crowd-funded media project in history, had convinced him to sign on. But I'll be honest, I was just not very interested in watching another modern American evangelical retelling of the Jesus story. I've been working so hard to rehabilitate my brain from so many previous interpretations of white western Jesuses that adding yet another just didn't seem like part of God's plan for my heart or imagination. I figured I'd check it out, but never really bothered to. It had its own app, which seemed kind of odd to me, and my family wasn't super interested, so it sat there on the list, never making it to the top. But then, finally, I watched it, and it was good. As of the moment I am recording this, The Chosen has been streamed over 233 million times and has raised over $20 million from viewers directly, earning them the freedom to create the show they want to create and give it away. Fans are currently donating towards the production of the third of seven projected seasons. And the music. Wow. Dan and his musical partner, Matthew S. Nelson, have crafted an adventurous, thoughtful, gritty score with deep references and an easily accessible tone. Though the primary narrative strength of The Chosen lies in its earthiness, its humanity, and its focus on the followers of Jesus, failure and all, as well as strong performances and direction, the musical choices are critical to the show's effectiveness always thoughtful and articulate. And as one with a unique creative story of his own, Dan Hasseltine and the other Jars boys have been on my list to have on the show since we started. But when I saw and heard The Chosen, I knew I needed to get him in here right away. As I've discovered while hanging out with the college students I work with, the independent artists I've produced or consulted, or even established pro artists who have been doing this a long time, getting songs into films and scoring films is something a lot of musicians are interested in. 
Dan has been doing this for a while, actually. But Matthew, who plays cello, guitar, and assortment of other stringed things for an impossibly eclectic list of artists, including Jars of Clay, Sleeping at Last, country artist Ray Lynn, and even some shows with Cheap Trick, just to name a few, is new to the film music world. I had a strong suspicion that we would have a lot to learn, not only about the technical and creative aspects of scoring visual media, but the emotional and spiritual challenges connected to the creation of a piece of art that endeavors to reflect what it may have been like to follow Jesus in the flesh. And let me say, we got that and a lot more. These guys were so generous with us, in fact, and had so much to offer that there was just no way we could edit it down to one show. So, y'all are in for a treat. First, we will visit with Dan Hasseltine for an in-depth conversation about not only the music he has helped put together for The Chosen, but also the roots, inspirations, and experiences that prepared him for this moment. We'll hear about the growth he and his bandmates experienced when they got caught up in the pursuit of a purpose, a calling much bigger than themselves and their careers, and how that mission has impacted the world even as they have allowed Jars of Clay's creative output to slow to a trickle. And then, on our next episode, we'll have an extended conversation with one of the most interesting sidemen in Music City when Matthew S. Nelson steps up to the True Tunes microphone and lets us in on his journey. We'll hear about his formal musical training, growing up with parents who are both music educators, and how he found himself on stage with a mind-boggling array of artists, along with the intricacies and strategies that he brings to the scoring process alongside Dan. And we'll hear a lot of music from The Chosen along the way. But first, let's take care of a little housekeeping. I first met Dan Hasseltine back when he and the other members of Jars of Clay were still in college sometime in the early 90s. I have always, and I mean always, found him to be one of the more thoughtful, gracious, brave, and sincere people I've known in the music scene. We met at the offices of Bloodwater Mission and dove right in. Hasseltine, yes, is the correct pronunciation, but, uh, but I have been called so many different ways, and so I don't you know, and called much worse. So I feel like I'm fine. However, anyone pronounces it. Well, yeah. thank you for taking some time with the true tunes podcast and uh, joining us today and having us here at the bloodwater mission office in yeah, Nashville. So. It's, it's great. And bloodwater mission is something that, that you and the band, the jars of clay started how many years ago now? It's been, yeah, it's been 17 years, I think. It's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty wild to think about it. Uh, just that, what, what started out as just four musicians trying to sort out what we were seeing in the world and going, okay, what can we do to step in further has actually taken shape and become a pretty, uh, you know, influential organization, not really by any of our doings, you know, really because of all the people that came alongside of us. But yeah, but to see that this organization is doing what it's doing now and having the impact that it's having, it's it's truly a great gift for us to see. And what what is the the mission of Bloodwater Mission? What has it accomplished in a nutshell? Yeah, Bloodwater in in its seventeen ish years has raised about forty million dollars. Wow. Yeah, to help uh, support 
small grassroots organizations who are doing clean water and HIV support in Africa. So we have been on the hunt for trying to find these small organizations that are doing really good work, that are empowering their communities, that are giving ownership of water projects to people where they live, and then finding ways where if they need support, learning how to be more efficient organizations, growing capacity so they can do more water projects. That's kind of our role is to really just say, okay, what are you doing? How can we help? And, uh, it's been an incredible season. We've we've just seen thousands and thousands of water projects come into play, which has impacted you know millions of people to have access to clean water, sanitation, hygiene, the support they need for um, HIV, um, to keep them from being isolated in communities where oftentimes they're exiled because of diseases uh, and and things like compromised immune systems. So yeah, it's been. It's just been unbelievable. And to see the, the generosity of people, JARS fans, uh, and then beyond JARS fans in the world to support this kind of work. What was the initial inspiration to to dig into something that deep and uh, take something like pop music or even uh, faith-based pop music into yeah. something like HIV and water in Africa that seriously? Yeah, well, you know what? I grew up with artists and bands who had a very um, kind of a social presence that way. Artists like Sting and Peter Gabriel, U2, you know, these these people who were my heroes in the music space that were all kind of championing other things. They were leveraging their art and their music to find um, something that they could have an impact in. Because that's what musicians do. Like... One of my mentors gave us this description of a songwriter, and he said, a songwriter is someone who looks at the world and describes it. And I think what I always remembered was he would follow that up by saying, and if you're going to take that seriously, eventually you're going to find something that you see that you want to do a little bit more than just describe. You're going to want to like step into it further. And I think that for us was this story about people in Africa who are wrestling with HIV. We were seeing the church at large back in, in, you know, 2000, 2001, had kind of the loudest voice was a very dissenting kind of voice. Or people who were just saying, we we don't need to care about people in Africa because this thing called AIDS is is just happening because of people's promiscuity. And so this is God's wrath, you know, and, and you kind of, and so they were like, let's just ignore these people. And, and I just, I was really shocked by that. And I think a lot of people were kind of going, well, no, that doesn't seem like the right approach. You know, if we have an opportunity to make a difference, why wouldn't we? So, and it's also factually not true. Right. Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's not not true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when is that ever been a deterrent for (laughs) let's not let the facts get in the way of a good story so we've we just kind of stepped into it and felt like you know a lot of it was probably just our ego at the time going hey well we're a big band we can we can make a difference but you know sometimes that ego can be useful it's like youthful idealism you step into it thinking well i'm going to be the one to save the world and um fortunately there are enough people that step in and around and and really help 
form something that is not really just ego based but is something that takes on the soul and the heart of of things so that we can actually love people well and and that's kind of where blood water landed was was just becoming something where we spent a lot of time listening before we started doing any action we listened to africans we asked what do you want what do you need how can we help and uh and that apparently was quite different from what they'd experienced from a lot of international aid organizations because a lot of times aid organizations will come in and go hey we're we've got this thing and we're going to provide it for you in your village and and people are like well sure okay go ahead even though it may not be the actual thing that they need right and we were coming in going actually what what is it that you dream about and want for your community and then how can we help you create that and that was just a very different approach. And we didn't know it was different. We were just musicians doing it the way we thought we should do it. Yeah. Looking back now, 17 years or so, can you think of a way or two that that this work has changed you as a creative person, this this kind of outward-looking yeah. stuff? Has it, has it affected you creatively? It has affected me. Um I mean, I think initially just the songwriting changed. Um, you know, I was a kid who grew up in the suburbs in you know Massachusetts and then in Florida. And, you know, my faith upbringing was not necessarily one fraught with a lot of, I don't know, like we, we, we weren't in need of very much growing up. And so my interpretation of who God was, the way God would provide for people, um, the way God meets people where they are, um, how faith intersects with suffering, like all of those things uh, were things that I hadn't paid much attention to. And so when we started interacting with people in Africa and started spending time and building relationships with people who, you know, they wake up in the morning and they pray, God, will you sustain us for today? Um, And then God does. Like those people have this relationship that that I could never have thought to be able to have. And so to start experiencing life through their eyes and seeing God in a different way, it informed a lot of the writing. And then I think it just was a humbling thing to step into a space where, you know, I, we're in the U.S. at the time, we, JARS was big and we could, we could be recognized and we had just all of those sort of the trappings of being a popular band and and you know that goes to our head it goes to our heart (laughs) and but then you step into these villages in Africa and they don't know who I am there's kids crying because I'm the first white person they've ever seen and so they think I'm a ghost and I'm pretty white Uh, (laughs) so um, and and just the humility of putting my or being in a space where I don't have the answers I don't have a clue really what I'm doing and that kind of stuff is what really informs the the creative space because all of a sudden I'm like oh I don't have to control this I can start allowing God and the influences of my experiences to sort of take on a space in the songwriting in the way that we put tours together in the way that we interact with other people and other bands like it all kind of moves itself into a new space
I think you know, if JARS has been anything, it's been pretty transparent uh, in our writing, in the way that we've done interviews. Um, we were just a bunch of college kids who had, for the most part, grown up in the church. You know, we had all been in youth group culture, and and I I hope what we did over the span of our career was just not hold back on the seasons we were in. Like we were able to just describe, like, okay, you know what? We were moving from a place of this kind of naive certainty, which is feels like a, a, a paradox, but but that sense of like we know exactly who God is and we know exactly how he works in the world into the space where we kept hitting up against experiences and cultures and people and ways that God was working that were sort of outside of those agreements that we felt like we had had. And so we kept, you know, some people would call it a deconstruction. I don't know that I would call it a deconstruction. I think it was just like, oh, we we've, we found a new pa- part of the path, like where we're, okay, now we have to kind of give up and let go of this impression we had of who God was. We have to give up this impression of who we thought we were and the way the world was. And we kept doing that in seasons, and I think it was just maturity um, for us. It was growing up. Most of our fans, they were about the same age we were, you know, and so they were they were paralleling our experience in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's what it was. You know, we kept just finding that, the things that we thought were true weren't actually true and the experiences we were having weren't lining up and so we had to figure out well what does that mean then um and in in some respects it meant that we had to disconnect from certain aspects of what was like the evangelical christian culture because we kept going oh well it's not that's not making sense to what we thought this was going to be and you know if we had listened to them from the very beginning Jars would never have played a bar or a club. Jars would never have made a record that um, had the ability for more universal themes to exist. Like we would have stayed very insular and circled our wagons in the church community, but that wasn't the story that we wanted to tell with Jars. And and we kept pushing back on the fears. Like every time someone would say, well, God doesn't do that. God doesn't go to those places. That's not where you're supposed to be. We kept going, well, I'm not so sure. And we at least want to ask the question, is God in this? And where is God? Because the reality for us, when we kept learning this, maybe our good friend David Dark, you know, Mm -hmm. saying that the God who created the universe is in the entire universe. And therefore, this idea of God being separate from anything or the idea of the secular versus the sacred, like we were realizing, oh, if God is the creator of the universe, then he is in everything, and therefore we can look for him in everything and be surprised, and right. we just wanted that, and we, we tried to navigate our career to keep elbowing space for that. Right. I remember thinking, you all the way back then, you guys seemed, you came kind of from, like you're saying, a Christian college, studying and, and kind of oriented, but even then it seemed like you, what you mm-hmm. wanted to do was to make music that the whole world could hear. Your first single was that, mm-hmm. but then it was like, here's the off-ramp into this other subculture, and you kind of got put in that subculture yeah. for the next 20 
30 years. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what happens so, when the mainstream label decides they don't want to put any more money into you. Right, right. <laughs> they don't want to promote outside of that. Right. Or they go, well, the Christian market is where all the money is. What was the inspiration? What was the first stuff that was getting you excited about music and making you want to pursue this stuff? Well... Yeah, my musical heritage began with bands like Queen and ABBA and right. I mean and like Billy Joel, like my parents had eight tracks of these artists. Right. And so that was my first introduction to music was a lot of that kind of stuff. Um and so I I always feel like I I gained a sense for um kind of a pop sensibility through listening to ABBA music over and over again. The way that they would create a pop hook was yeah. like no one else. Right. Um, and then just obviously the the rock and roll, the harmony of a band like uh, like Queen, mm-hmm. all of that stuff stuck with me. And then the storytelling of a guy like, like Billy Joel. Those were kind of the three initial influences when I was really little. I spent a lot of time, uh, I was a weird kid. Um, I spent a lot of time sitting in a rocking chair next to our console stereo listening to rock and roll music like if that's my not that weird it's not weird but <laughs> but my parents would go out for an evening and i would just sit like we could have a babysitter or somebody at the house that's supposedly watching us and i would they would have no trouble with me because all i would yeah. do is sit and listen to music yeah and so my my musical like for whatever reason music hit me in a way like it was the thing that that first connected me to the stories of the world and um and then my home life was it was not terrible but it was volatile at different points and as a kid i i would retreat into music and when i started playing music my my parents bought me this little casio keyboard and i started um you know plucking out little um, melodies from pop songs I heard on the radio. And then they kind of thought, well, maybe he's got something here, and uh, some sort of talent. And then they bought a piano for the house, and I started playing. And I took lessons from this guy who didn't teach me any... I didn't, never got any sort of classical training. I learned how to play keyboard and piano from a guy who taught me blues scales and... And then every the way I learned was he would just pick a pop song that's on the radio and and we would learn how to play it. So you learned in context. So I learned right. in context, yeah. Um, and that was kind of music for me. But but when things were difficult, I would go and put my headphones on and start playing music and composing pieces of music. That was my outlet, um, and that carried me all the way through. Um, the bands that really kind of took hold of me. Though, like maybe one in particular was was this group Depeche Mode. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was for me was the pinnacle because there was something about their music. It was dark. It was 
adventurous. It was very synth keyboard based, which I loved. Right. My first band was four keyboard players. To be honest, oh, I was wow. a nerd. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we would Craft sit. Work we would sit. Thing. Yeah, we would sit in a warehouse and play New Order songs and Depeche Mode yeah. songs and uh, all that kind of stuff. I was a new wave kind of kid. I loved nice. all that stuff. And then, um, and that was sort of my thing. I just loved that music and the way that they would weave these different melodies all together. If you ever listen to a Depeche Mode record, the thing that you'll find is that there's no solo instruments. But every instrument is doing something melodic, right? And uh, and so I was I was really learning a lot of music and writing and stuff from them. And then I worked at a record shop. Uh, from, that'll mess you up. Yep, that will mess you up. I did two <laughs> things. I had kind of had the best best um, jobs as a kid in high school. I worked at a record shop called Peaches Music. Oh yeah. And and I had the it was a great experience because my manager, the the store we worked at, he wanted everybody to have a, a musical education. So he would move us all around the store and put us in charge of different genres back then when they would you know, so for three months you'd be in charge of the classical jazz part of the store and so you'd have to learn mm -hmm. what are the the core jazz albums what are the core classical pieces that people are interested in you'd have to learn about that and then you'd go to blues and bluegrass and then you'd go to pop music and country and you'd at every point you had to learn what was going on in all these genres and be able to be you know a resource for people that came into the store because always people come in you know i heard this song on the radio and it had the word love in it and I, I think it was a guy singer but it could have been a girl singer do you know what song i'm talking about and you'd have to be able to go like oh yeah i know what that right, is right, right. that all informed when when i started making music with the guys in jars it was just like i wasn't listening to christian music so i was listening to everything and when you listen to everything you realize that there are themes that tend to come out across the board. Right. There are themes of loss and themes of of longing and desire and wanting for connection. And all of those things are in every genre of music because we're human beings making music. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I want, I want my music to have those. And I also want it to sound, I just want it to sound like the music that I've been listening to. So then you studied music in college. Were you studying music theory and composition and an instrument? Or were you mm -hmm. studying music business? Or what, what were you? Because you were in that music yeah. program at Greenville, and that's where the band came together. Yeah, the music program at Greenville was, was fascinating. So I wasn't an awesome musician. Let's just put that right out there. Um, I 
played piano and I wanted to be, I just wanted to be a, I wanted to be a music producer is really what I wanted to be. But you had to kind of go through all the process of learning, you know, so I was taking piano and composition there, performance, and then also doing studio recording classes. And that was really where the band met was in these studio recording classes. We had to write songs and then record them. And we were actually graded on the the recording, not necessarily the song. So, (laughs) yeah, but we had to write original pieces to do that. They didn't want us to just cover a tune from somebody else. And that was part of the program. And we wrote a lot of those first Jars of Clay tunes came out of these studio recording classes. We wrote them to get graded on the actual recordings. And the recordings were not very good. We didn't ever get an A on any of them. But um, we wrote, like, Love Song for Savior and Like a Child and Fade to Gray. Like, those were all songs that we had written as part of this class. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And that was just, like, those were the themes that were coming up and... And we were listening to, you know, at the time, Sarah McLachlan and Seal and uh, Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam were all happening at the Wet Sprocket also, (laughs) yes. Um, So all those bands were kind of happening, and and so we were drawing from all of those different places. And then the the techno, the rave culture was happening at the same time. And so we just kept trying to go, okay, well, what would be a cool combination of things and sounds? And all of that just came in that, those days at Greenville College experimenting and we would go into the studio at you know eight o'clock at night and leave at three in the morning three or four in the morning because nobody else would use the studio and we would just experiment with different sounds and stuff phase of community and friendship and getting in a boat with people and just doing stuff is really, really important. I mean, it's, yes. it's so formative. And I think now everything is so individualistic and people are sitting with their laptop in their basement yeah. and they're not, they don't have to go to the studio at school and collaborate with people and compromise and incorporate everybody's ideas and lean yeah. on the person who's good at this and that they're not, they can just pull up a sample and pull up a drum loop and pull up stuff and do it themselves. But I think they're missing that, what you guys experienced and, and yeah. how many you guys, have, all of those people and even a couple generations or years behind you right. that did so much stuff, but there was, I think a greenhouse that, mm-hmm. that developed there that was really, really important. Yeah. It was such an odd place for such a kind of incubator for great, right. like innovative music, but it was, it was, the guys from Paper Route, Sarah John, if you remember her, was oh, yeah. part of that. Like, there were there were a lot of great and talented people in that space. 
but I think that you're absolutely right in the the need for to practice collaboration because I think it's one thing to be able to control your music and um, have an idea and then build it, but it's something else when you're able to just say, "Hey, I've I've got part of an idea." And I have no idea where this is going to end. Like the the open-ended nature of collaboration is the magic of music, I think. Because right. it really does allow you to not like hold on to everything so tightly. Music is kind of an open-handed thing. Creativity is an open-handed thing. And so you want other things to influence it. Um, it's just that's what gives you that sense of surprise. The happy accidents that happen in the studio are are so amazing and so fun. Um, and like a lot of us want to avoid those now because we can sit with our laptop and create right. something and perfect it. But in a way, like the soul of the music is kind of in the imperfection and the way things come together that you wouldn't expect. Right. So, yeah. So if there's a lack of control that comes from collaboration, I think that's... A vital piece to be able to experience. We'll have more with Dan Hasseltine right after this. It is harder than ever for us to stay connected. There is so much noise out there that it can be impossible to lock in on the signals we really want to hear. When it comes to the True Tunes conversation, there are a few things you can do that will really help us stay connected with you. First, sign up on our email list. It really is important to know that we can communicate directly with you without having to pay a middleman like Facebook for you to see what we post. Second, make sure to watch for the confirmation email and confirm it. Then, add us to your contacts so our messages don't get caught in your spam filters. Next, find us on Facebook at TrueTunesNow and like us there. Find us on Instagram at TrueTunesMusic and follow us there. And you can follow me on Twitter at John J. Thompson. Also, I curate a weekly Spotify mix that I invite you to follow and enjoy. You can find the link on the show notes page, and we even put it right up there on the front page at truetunes.com. I've pulled together over 5,000 songs for our listeners, about 40 at a time, and it's a great way to hear new artists, remember some great stuff from the past, and even hear some classic mainstream tunes from a different perspective. Check it out and let me know what you think. And thank you for continuing to tell your friends about this show. If you have taken the time to write and post a review and give a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts, that means so much. If not, please do. Please keep posting links and inviting folks in your world into this conversation. All right, now back to the conversation with Dan. So, as we transition now, you're trying to extricate yourself from the confines of, in one way, Christian music, but even in another way, kind of maybe evangelical subculture in general, and you end up scoring the music to a TV show about Jesus. So let me just suggest (laughs) that maybe you suck at getting yourself out of Christian music. It's probably true. (laughs) So, um, uh, but... Um, I will also say that uh, you first mentioned to me that you were doing the music for this show, The Chosen, a while ago, and I chose not to watch it um, because I just thought, oh, another American show about Jesus, you know, I'll put it on the list, but I'll get to it at some point. But my expectations were, were pretty low. 
and I thought, mm. well, they're really lucky to have gotten somebody like Dan to do the music for this, but um, good on them. And and I also would have to, at some point, sell this to the other people in my house who right. are very unlikely to want to go watch that. In fact, I tried yeah. a couple times. When we would finish whatever our current thing, well, we could always watch the chosen eh, we'll get to it what about let's do this yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so then finally um we did and we were just completely caught off guard by this thing so i'm really excited to talk about the music in the chosen and uh, first i want to know you as a music for film person so what is what training did you do what's your inspiration how far back i i know that you've done some of this before this is not yeah. your first project that you've scored or that you've mm-hmm. worked on but tell me about what led up to this and then i want to hear about how in the world somebody talked to you into scoring a jesus show yeah uh, one of the first keyboards that i bought when i was a young kid was this keyboard called an ensonic esq1 and it was it came out the same time this is this is the techie nerdy talk but it came out the same time that the yamaha dx7 came out it was in the same era as the Mirage. Mirage was the sampling keyboard. This was just a synthesis, uh, uh, um, FM synthesis, uh, and it had a sequencer. Right. With eight okay, tracks, an right. eight-track sequencer. And so, built yeah, built in. And so I started composing pieces. You know, there's no way to record a vocal, and I actually never considered myself a, a singer back then. So I would just create these pieces. And then the next keyboard I bought after that was a Korg M1, which also had a sequencer. Yes. Yes. And that one is the one where I really started to develop this sense for, for building and composing music. And I did a couple of things. I was living in, um, just outside of Orlando, Florida and full sale was the school that was just developing and they would do projects with my high school. Um, and we did a couple of film, like short film projects that I was able to help create some music for. And that was something I just absolutely loved. So I was like a sophomore in high school at the time. And I really just loved that process of creating music for film. And then never really got to do it that much, but always watching movies. I mean, I grew up in the Star Wars E.T. era, so... John Williams, the way that he would put a score together for a film. And then you had guys like John Hughes, who was using, you know, pop music in his films in ways that people hadn't really done before at such a, 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 that made them more characters in the film than anything that was say anything with Peter Gabriel's uh, in your eyes. Like there's moments like that where you just went, okay, music fits with film. So that was my upbringing. I started learning more about it, like maybe more officially when I um, when I was asked to do a film, funnily enough, with Dallas Jenkins. Dallas approached me. We were just friends. And he said, hey, I'm doing this, this movie called Hometown Legend. And would you be interested in doing the score for this? And it was kind of in between jars, records and i we had like a year so i thought well that might be fun to try something what like year this. is this roughly oh gosh this was uh 1999 oh wow okay dallas was always 
seeking out talent outside of just the CCM space, but he was making movies that had Christian themes in them. So he approached me and, and just said, would you do this? And I thought, yeah, let's do it. And, and what I brought to the table was um, I wouldn't let the film sound like a Christian film. So I was kind of turning the film on its side a little bit in order to kind of just give, I don't know, to give the, the film a little bit more credibility. So you were yeah. scoring it and basically doing yeah, music doing, supervision. Yes. You were, you were both. But then it, like 10 years later, Dallas calls me up again and he's like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this project. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him no right. initially I was like Dallas I don't know I I just was not terribly interested but our conversation like he he was smart <laughs> he knew how to appeal to my ego um, for sure <laughs> you know he said you know Dan there are there are people I would like to do this project with and then there are people that I can't do this project without mm. and he said I can't let this show sound like a normal Jesus movie. He's like, I need it to sound different. I need it to be, I want it to startle people. And he's like, I don't necessarily know who else to ask. And he just needed it to to be disruptive and unsettling for people. He's like, Dan, I would if more people complain about the music in the show, that's kind of what I want. Because I want people to hear something that they haven't heard before. So I said, all right, well, that sounds interesting to me. That feels like a good challenge. As you've gotten into this thing, um, you really have, and you're not the only one doing it. You've got quite a partner. Um, yes. Um, so, and with um, Matthew, tell me about your connection with him, and give me a little bit of perspective on on your partner in this. And obviously, yeah. you have you've worked together before, but tell me about Matthew. And yeah. So I I got off the phone with Dallas. And I started to think about what I wanted the the show to sound like. Um, what were the elements that I think would make make real sense? And and it and it started with this idea. Okay, let's let's take a few different pieces. And I, as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, um, Middle Eastern drone would be a really good musical bed. Um, as I had learned about drone, and even when you use it for mantra or contemplative prayer, things like that, it's the God note. They call it the God note. It's the core, the base, uh, the root. And um, and so I thought, well, it would be good to have that as a, a core piece, and it obviously brings in the Middle Eastern element uh, into a show that is set in the Middle East. So, um, so that was the first thing. And then I th was thinking about what what is the sound of oppression? Because the culture was a slave culture, but how do I translate that to an American audience? Um, and I thought, well, I think American Southern slave spirituals is a good place to start. And I, so I thought, well, let's, 
let's incorporate that piece into this. So there's these sort of southern elements of um, like Ruby Amonfu as a vocalist in the show, and, and we used um, some samples and a lot of the rhythms that we chose to use early on were were sort of like chain gang style rhythms. And then I thought, well, what else? What has that same quality of scale that Middle Eastern music has without being Middle Eastern music? Uh, and we landed on Delta Blues. The sonics of this have, you really have designed something that are, are try, that seems to have subtly and in the background told us some things about right. know, where we are. And I think, and that's really where where Matt Nelson comes into play is because I knew that the tones that I was wanting to create were not things that were within my wheelhouse really like I'm not a guitar aficionado by any means like I cannot I can play I I'm the three chords in the truth kind of a person um, but Matt Nelson is a multi-instrumentalist and he had been on the road with jars for a lot of years playing live with us we had kind of stripped our sound back to i was playing drums at the front of the stage and singing steve was on guitar matt was on guitar charlie on like a wurlitzer and then matt nelson was playing cello Um, but he when he came out to play cello with us he would bring this massive pedal board with him and all of these, like, he would just create all of these noises and sounds. And he was, in, you know, a lot of classically trained musicians have a hard time on the improvisation side of things. Um, but he was so reactive and capable of improvising in the middle of a show. And, and then he also grew up listening to a lot of progressive music like I did. And, and so he had all of that in his wheelhouse. And I thought, well, this is the guy I want to collaborate with and work with on this show. So I pulled Matt in and I just called him. I was like, hey, I got this thing. (laughs) What do you think about? And he had just like, he was not doing anything like he had just COVID was kind of hitting. And so he's like, we're not touring. I'm not doing anything. Let's let's yeah, let's see what happens. So we got in a room and started thinking about the process for the show. And, and so he and I have just been collaborating on this and uh, it's been so wonderful. Uh, He's such an incredibly talented person, so capable in so many levels um, and so we, we kind of take on these different roles. Like I will, I'll be the guy that's going, okay, I feel like this, this cue, this part of the show needs to feel this way. And I want it to have this, here's the theme that we created that I want it to build off of. And then Matt will just kind of go to town on it. He'll pick up an instrument and we'll start to kind of sort it out. And he then just creates this, this thing. And now workflow, yeah. are you looking at scenes that have already been shot and you're doing it at that point or are you looking at yep. script or what so yeah the, the process for the show is is been that we will get um get different scenes from the show uh and then we will 
we will basically write to those scenes. The best, most efficient way is for us to get like a what they call a locked picture, right. which is an edited version of the show. Like so one episode, fully edited, but not like color corrected or any of that stuff. There's no sound like there's dialogue, but it's not final dialogue always and stuff. But but we can tell where this where everything is going and the the scenes are not going to change in time. So we don't have to like re-edit music or re-record things because length has changed or the tone of the scene is different. So we start with a locked picture. And then Matt and I do uh, what they what they call um, a uh, spotting session, and the spotting session is really where we go. Okay, where do we think music should happen in the show? You know, it sounds very simple, uncomplicated, but really what you're what we're doing is we're hunting for emotional shifts, right? We're looking for somebody's facial expression changing, mm. or some you know just a slight somebody drops their guard for a second or somebody becomes defensive for a second or angry or like whatever. Like we are looking for those very subtle movements and to Dallas's credit as a director, he loves the subtlety of, of a scene and he loves to kind of take a scene that could be melodramatic and drop in moments that just disrupt the whole thing. So when we're looking for um, the emotional center of a scene, like, okay, this scene is supposed to be, uh, is supposed to give people a sense for anxiety or, or we want people to feel the sadness of this character. Like we have to look for that and find it and then identify it and then say, okay, that's where the music starts is right on this point. So once we've done that, because sometimes it's yeah. difficult to leave things. Once people hear this and they go back and watch stuff, they'll start to notice that the shows that don't trust the viewer at all and the entire score is there to tell you exactly what to think and feel all exactly. the way through versus the ones that will, are comfortable to let you just actually hear the environment and then very subtly bring in some things. And so so yeah. Dallas is trusting you with all of that, all those yes. decisions of when to bring that in. Wow. Dallas, when we first started, he was doing the spotting sessions with us. Okay. And so he was, and he always will, will comment and say, hey, I'd really like music to happen here. Uh, in this, at this point in the show, or where this person does this one bit of action, I would love for this to happen. And then on occasion, he'll actually say, "Hey, would you send me a piece of music that then we can edit this scene to?" So they will actually let music decide where a scene will go at different points. The cool thing about being able to do the sound design with the music is that it it actually it allows it to all sort of work together right. and weave itself together. Um, but there are moments where it doesn't need to be a tonal thing. It just needs to be a noise. And a noise is enough to trigger a certain kind of emotion or sense. And so that's been fun. And it's been just cool to play a, a, around with different noises and different sounds that are atonal or just odd. Or Yeah, that gives us some, some creative space that we wouldn't normally get to sit in. And are most of the sounds we're hearing, the strings and stuff, is it is it mostly organic, real instruments being recorded? Or are you using a combination of organic and samples, or is it? There's a fair amount of samples in it, but then we also, like all of the acoustic instruments are actual live instruments. Um, and, you know, the percussion stuff is a mixture of live and sample-based. But And then the vocal, Ruby's vocal is obviously all 
all ruby (laughs) which is great there's no fake in that yeah and i so i love that combination of using both the samples and the the real instruments and we've really we've really limited our palette we at the beginning of this whole thing set our palette up so we have some pretty substantial limitations of what we'll use so that we know like oh if we need this kind of sound we have to create it using one of the things we already have so we we have to be really careful or we we decided we wanted to use modern elements but we also wanted to make sure they don't pull someone out of the story um, by using like a, a bit of music that is so blatantly out of character that that you wouldn't you know just because it's a cool song doesn't mean it actually should be in right. this show like our goal is to mix everything so it feels very organic yeah. uh, very natural so even if we're using modern sounds like let's let's put them in some sort of space where they feel organic part of my job Aside from putting the right music in to like play to the emotion that needs to happen, is also to surprise Dallas. Oh, wow. Like, I'd, I really want, like, I'll see a scene and I'll go, okay, I know exactly what they're thinking could happen here. <laughs> right. Let's do something different. Cool. And let's, so like, um, and I think that's kind of the fun piece. And that's where I think Dallas also, why he steps back too, is I think he likes the fact that sometimes he gets to be surprised. Mm-hmm. He's not just dictating, okay, I need this melody to be really beautiful and sweet here and tell me what kind of music wants to go there. He'll just be like, okay, we know music starts here. Whatever you got, show me what you got. <laughs> so we'll create something and it'll... And I love playing into the rebel Jesus uh-huh. in the show what a surprise for you. Right. <laughs> but there, well there, and there is, and I think that's part of what doesn't, I have never really seen a, a story of Jesus where people play into that part. Like the, the really the disruptive Jesus, you know, yeah. they, there usually is the melancholy, the, the right. heavy laden, the Jesus that's burdened with this, this thing. He knows he's going to be dying. And, um, or the super sweet Jesus or the innocent Jesus, but you don't really ever hear the rebel Jesus. Right. The guy who's going to be like, you know what? I'm going to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've loved being able to play into that Jesus. And that's where we keep trying to find spots where it makes sense to keep adding that in. And so there's a lot of fun in that. And even in the way he's depicting the character that it's it's not there there's a lot of emotional range from humor and charisma playfulness it's not overly somber but then there's these moments punctuated with intentionality and you know that the disruptor is in there and he's waiting for his moment um but i liked the musical almost references to things like almost like a Tarantino kind of Reservoir Dogs thing. Yes. And and the ending of the first season <laughs> when they're walking away. Yes. And I'm like, this is a gang movie now. When I first thought of even the title, The Chosen, oh, The Chosen is Jesus. Yeah. No, this is about the disciples, the people that, that mm-hmm. Jesus chooses. And therefore, it's about us. And, right. And that, and that to me is where the the... It gets really interesting. And mm-hmm. the music then 
is uh, indicative of a coming tension, a coming, but also like uh, there's a there's a team that's forming. There's there's a musical camaraderie. Yes, you know. So I, how what kind of references are? Am I making this up, or, or am I tracking? Yeah, like, with some intentionality on, there. Yeah, well, and even the end of the second season, the final episode. Um, the piece of music that we ended up creating for it was is actually very different from where we started. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Dan and more of our conversation right after this. Please take a minute to sign up on our email list because it is the best way to make sure you hear about new episodes of this show and new articles posted on the site, of course. But it's also the only way you can be eligible to win stuff from us. We occasionally do giveaways, like our current prize pack that includes a ticket to the Audio Feed Festival, a super rare DVD copy of the Cornerstone Festival 20 Years and Counting film, and a bunch of cool swag from us and the Electric Jesus film and Girder Records. So make sure you subscribe and open those emails when when they come. You are going to want to make plans to be in Champaign, Illinois this Labor Day weekend for the live debut of Three Sick Teens, a fun version of the band from the Electric Jesus film, including singers Wyatt Lennart and Sarah Hutchinson and other actors from the film and more when they open for the Danielson family. I'll be on hand and we'll be doing live True Tunes podcast events and conversations. I'll also be performing a set with my band The Wayside, so make your plans now and come join Join us in person for this amazing experience that will include a full screening of the film. All of the information is available at audiofeedfestival.com, and we are so excited to announce that the wide release date for Electric Jesus has been set for November 2nd. It has been a long time coming. Make sure to check out the Electric Jesus podcast produced by myself and Bruce and featuring writer and director Chris White and a pretty amazing cast of guests. Season 1 is available now. The Rock and Roll Road Show. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Okay, back to my conversation with Dan. It seems like the only vocalizations you hear throughout the season are female voices. It's it's pretty much mm-hmm. just Ruby. Yeah. Although I heard you did a you did a trailer with Ella, mine. Yes. Who we also had on the show. Yes. So female voices throughout the thing, but then the only time we ever hear you sing is the song at the very end um, of each season so far. So yes. I, I kind of like that we got to wait for that. And then it's these songs that are that are the kind of gang 
gangster songs. Yes. You know, which is fun. I think it's going to keep happening, too. I think, I mean, every season, we know where the story goes, and we know it keeps getting darker and more difficult and challenging. And so we will add, like, our goal is to keep adding other voices in that will represent that. There will be, you know, Matt and I have already talked about, there is a, a trajectory that we're on musically um, that will include more male gospel voices, darker tones, mm-hmm. things like that will all start to come out as the seasons progress. Do we know how many seasons there are going to be? They are slated to do a total of seven seasons. So we have five more seasons to go. Okay. Yeah. So I'll tell you one of my favorite scenes, and I'd like to uh, talk about it and listen to some of the music here and tell me about how it came together. Uh the scene from the first season with Nicodemus and Jesus on the roof just destroyed me. Um, Obviously the acting and the way that the story was framed, the, the entire way that, that he has uh, brought Nicodemus in uh, more than we see in the actual text of scripture, but to represent some other things, but the, the way that that scene was shot and depicted and then the way that the music was brought in was really really interesting tell me about that scene and how that yeah. how that came together for you and all those different layers and the emotions that are at play mm-hmm. and going back and forth yeah that that scene between Jesus and Nicodemus is one of my favorites um, and in fact I was so taken by it when I first watched it and it didn't have any music at all, I, I actually fought. To, I almost didn't want music to happen in the majority of that scene. Um, Dallas kept, we would do something, Matt and I would be like, oh, let's not put music here, let's wait right to the very end. And Dallas kept going, hey, maybe, could you guys just start it a little bit earlier? Could you just start it a little bit earlier? And we kept going back and forth. Finally, it was like, all right, we'll try to create something for this piece. What I loved about creating that that piece was our goal was actually to really underplay what is the most famous piece of scripture that if you're a believer you know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, and you're like going, "Okay, this is this is the scripture where, you know, you would hear the angels voices and, <laughs> right. and the light would come over him and Yeah. But what happened was it, it happened in conversation. It was just two people having a conversation. And we were like, I love that we get to downplay this and just breeze right past it. And that's one of the reasons I didn't want to have any music at all for it. But Dallas kept going, well, but I think the scene itself could use this underbed of curiosity. Um, he's like, what we really want to do is be in Nicodemus's head. Right. We want to have the music come from that space of this guy who's just trying to sort it out like he's looking at this guy who could be the messiah and he's so going what does this mean for me as a pharisee as a person who has studied this who has longed for this prayed for this like what does this mean and uh and so that bit of of confusion that bit of um longing and then revelation when he actually goes oh you are the messiah like that is so powerful 
and in a way that's we were scoring our own experiences with that right we all kind of have that sense is this god is god real is jesus real is this really matter and then you know that really intimate space of going oh it does matter for me that scene nicodemus is the church like yeah. i can't not see that whole thing and then the, the corresponding mm-hmm. scene that happens when he shows up later and right. it's just devastating to see anyone who encounters this and is that close and then just decides no i I can't go with Jesus where he's actually calling me to go. I, I'm going to stay with the institution. I'm going to stay with yeah. the power. And I loved the very, very subtle, not telling me what to think, not telling me what to feel, but yeah. allowing space for me to bring my feelings mm-hmm. into that thing. And that, to Good. me, is the difference in general between art and propaganda. music and film at least as i want it to be is an invitation but not an instruction like i don't like when music does that like you were describing it tells me exactly what to think or feel i want it to just be like hey this is a story you find yourself in the story and then you get to choose whether or not you're going to adapt to what we're playing or you're going to just pick your own emotion and and so our music for the show in general is going to be pretty vague in that way. We will we'll create some signposts because we there's some areas of foreshadowing where we we need a person to feel a, a certain thing. Um, but very rarely will we dictate the emotion of a scene. We want to just nod to it and make a suggestion. You could see this as a very sad part of the show, or you could see it as a very confusing or frustrating part of the show or whatever you want. Like we, we still want to give people the empowerment to, to think and feel what they're thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. That's how they own the story, right? It becomes our own when we get to internalize it and feel it and experience it our way. So, and I, I've always, I've always felt like I was either being lied to or being talked down to when shows kind of created that much of a certainty around the emotion of a scene like when you're telling me what i'm supposed to think i feel like you're treating me like someone who's not very smart but isn't that kind of similar to the tension we've both felt uh in the proper christian art world Mm -hmm. where if the art is really secondary to the underlying purpose of the art which is to deliver a message or to reinforce reinforce a cultural code then really the the art isn't is just an excuse and that's the propaganda yeah and so we've we've been down this road (laughs) so many times to say yeah i really just wanted to tell a story and let the the yeah participant the audience decide and react Um, yes and in general, that's been a pretty decent model for mm-hmm. art engagement 
throughout human history, but there's yeah. always, and not just in Christian art, but there's always been a tension between some people that say, no, that's not enough. This has to sell my product. This, you know, what, whatever that product might be. Yeah. And the, there, that tension is, is universal, ubiquitous. It's not unique. It's not something that Christians need to pull their hair out over and go, oh, this is, it's the same thing with pop music it's the same thing with political music it's you know do you trust your story do you trust your work or is the work Mm -hmm. just a means to deliver an ulterior motive the problem that i have found is that if you need the music to set the emotional tone with such um force then you're probably actually lying in your character you right. Done your other job you haven't well. done the other job well because the person is obviously not reacting in a scene as a human being, and and so that person you and so you need the music then to carry that and and give person uh, a person the emotion to to experience, and I think that's that's unfortunate. I think a lot of that's been part of the problem and challenge of Christian filmmaking is they take the agenda and they put it first. And then they create characters who aren't actually responding to the way the world is happening around them in their environment in human ways. So none of us can actually relate to it. So then it's like, well, if I can't relate to it, then I don't know how to feel about it. So, oh, here's the music telling me how I'm supposed to feel about it. And it's just a cheap way of creating um, you know, space for the agenda, but it's not actually telling a true or right story. So you can pretty much tell if a character is lying to you if the music has to be so robust in order to get you to feel something. And so we that's one thing that Dallas is great at. He's hes telling the truth in the way the characters respond. No very grateful for the space that jars of clay filled for people i i think because we were we kind of entered into the the christian music space fairly naively like we weren't we didn't actually know what we were supposed to be doing in the ccm space you know we didn't come at it thinking that oh we're supposed to be evangelizing to people about this thing or we're supposed to be drawing people to this direction or I think we just thought that well this is where our music seems to fit so let's just keep making our music um, I don't think we we were we had any agenda and so when when I get letters from people or I have conversations with people now about the way jars music interacted with their life and became that soundtrack 
for the most part, it's been very meaningful. Um, I I think yes, we were part of a monster, or, or we we definitely pushed people into a certain space. And I even uh, at one point on on social media, I I put out an apology at one point because we had done we had been a part of things like you know Franklin Graham festivals where where I thought well at the time we were playing our music in front of a large audience and it was still our songs but I realized that we probably invited people into a space that maybe was a little bit more conservative or maybe a little less um, compassionate towards you know the gay community or the or you know the community of, of and sort of any oppressed group I feel like what we brought people into is not what we thought we were doing like uh, and so I think if people ended up being trapped by religion because they found it through jars of clay like that was something we just thought oh we're that was not our intention we're sorry like our stories that we were telling were sincere and we wanted you to be able to trust jars but we didn't we were not even trusting of that whatever the monolith of certainty that evangelicalism has become like that's not what we were intending so so i think in that regard there's a little bit of regret (laughs) for us but we also navigated outside of it a lot and we tried at every point we could to i don't know to define our terms like if we were talking about faith we would talk about it a certain way and we would define it in a way that people understood what was different about what we were saying than what others were saying. Right. Um, and we've always tried to do that because we feel like we have to be stewards at some level of the message we're sharing and the audience we have. Right. You know, We want to tell the truth. We don't want to lie to people. And, um, and this is a continuation. The, the work that I've been doing with The Chosen, it, it feels like... I still get to tell the truth. Um, This version, this portrayal of Jesus in this show, to me, is telling the truth. And it's not the Bible. It's not meant to be a documentary. (laughs) But it's telling the truth about the human experience and, and the characters around Jesus and what they probably felt or what they were in the midst of. Like All of that stuff, to me, is saying, okay, this is this is what life is actually like. It's challenging, it's frustrating, it's difficult, it's hard, it's joyful, it's amazing, um, but you have to experience all of it and hit it head on. So that's what I get to do musically. January 1, I got a lot of things on my mind I'm looking at my body through a new spy satellite Try to lift a finger, but I don't think I can make the call So tell me if I move, cause I don't feel anything at all Uh So carry me I think for the benefit of people who 
maybe they're familiar with jars at its peak or they're familiar with the chosen but there's maybe a, a valley between there that they're not as familiar with and there's so many songs from the the last 10 years of what you did in there I guess what I'm getting at is that in the same way we're talking about how a good score highlights the emotional resonance without telling you what to think. Yeah. That's the same thing I think that you guys have been striving to do is suggesting what your experiences are without necessarily telling people what to think about stuff. And there have been examples of great artists of faith that have done that. Yeah. But there's also been an entire, not just an industry around music, but an entire culture that has said, it's not really about thinking deeply. It's about believing the right propositions mm -hmm. and then reinforcing the codes and kind of not thinking too deeply. What's emerged for us in this conversation has been this idea of listen to better music and listen to music better with the idea that we might become better people as a result of that. As, as we kind of wrap this up, can you think of any examples of how listening to music better, maybe in the process of doing this project even with the score or something else in your past has helped you to actually become a better person? Do you think music and how we listen to music can actually shift how we be human beings? Man, that's a great question. John, I think that every singer, songwriter is trying to let people into their story. Like I've long believed that if you follow an artist's career over time, they are they have a question that they're trying to answer. Uh, and it's often the the same kinds of questions that most of us are trying to answer. And so to kind of move yourself out of the space of just using music to be the uh, the background for what we're experiencing ourselves and allowing us to listen to music from that writer's perspective. Like just for a minute, shut our own story off maybe and go, okay, what are they actually telling me? Like what are they asking? What is this question this artist is dealing with? And then how are they answering it? Like how are they actually getting to this point I think that for me has been huge um, trying to sort out why an artist would would tell this story in their song why would they choose this music why would they choose this topic um, all of that is so vital I even tell my own kids like there was a long season where I felt like when jars was predominantly in the Christian music space, people would come up to us and go like, Oh, what do you think? My kids, they, they want to listen to secular music and we're trying to make them only listen to Christian music. What do you think about that? And I'm like, Oh, please let your kids listen to whatever they want to listen to. I'm like you, the goal is not to shut a person off from other people's stories. The goal is to listen to music, take in those lyrics and go, okay, where is this telling me the truth and where is this lying to me about the way the world is, about the way people are? That's how we learn from other people's stories. And it's not we're not going to learn anything from people that think just like us. We need someone to turn the cube another direction so we can see it from a different angle. That's what artists do. That's what musicians do. And if you're not willing to step into that space and view it from their viewpoint, you're not going to learn anything. And then you're just going to be a scared person, 
right? You're going to be a scared, isolated person. So I think people have to look at music and find that space, elbow that space to find uh, the, the time to look at another person's story, the expression of that story through a song or an album or a career of music and see if there's anything to learn from it because I bet there is. Jars of Clay projects on the horizon? What, what's going on with the band? Jars just, we just recorded a song for actually uh, a Randy Stonehill That's right. project. Yeah. Um, so we just did that. Uh, we covered one of his songs. Um, the project's going to be pretty eclectic. I think there's a lot of really amazing artists that are on this thing. And um, so we did that. That was the last studio thing we've done. Um, uh, outside of that, there's not a lot of jars music. We keep kind of getting together and going. Well, let's maybe we'll do something. Maybe we won't. Everyone is so busy. You know, we've got Stephen Mason who's you know busy being soccer Moses um, in the world of <laughs> Nashville <laughs> soccer, and then you know Matt Odemark and Charlie Lowe both producing and writing for other people. My work with the Chosen, and um, yeah, so we're all pretty content to be where we are. Um, but who knows? We haven't said no to it. We just haven't necessarily said yes. Is there anything else musically out there that you, uh, collaboration, whether it's connected to The Chosen or something else mm -hmm. that's out there that you are dreaming of doing that you haven't attempted yet? You know, I keep coming back to the idea of putting out my own, like just writing an, a record for myself. And I... I I keep getting paralyzed by the just the amount of options, but I but I do have just a strong desire to collaborate with a lot of people and make some more music. I, I always love playing and collaborating with. There's I did a project with a couple of my good buddies, Matt Bronloway and Jeremy Bose, called The Hawk in Paris, right. and loved loved doing that project. And we keep toying with the idea of doing more music with that. Um, which I'd love to do. Um, and then I just have so many musical friends that won't let me off the hook when I'm writing. Like, that's the thing. With Jars, I was the primary lyricist, and I could kind of write what I want, and there was no real pushback on it. Um, I have started writing with people that won't let me off the hook. Like, in the moment where I, where I need to confess... I actually have to confess. I can't just write a line about the stars or the mountains. Like I have to actually say the thing, and uh, and that's um, that's refreshing. That's new and challenging for me. And I think there's an album that will come of that kind of discipline. Um, I just have to find the right skin for it and uh, figure out where it'll go. 
Throw me like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter, pour me in your cup. Should've known we'd bring trouble, trouble gonna find you here. keep my soapbox tucked away until we wrap up part two of this extended conversation, but I am thinking hard about the sound beneath the sound. What is the soundtrack that hums just under our story? How are we contributing to the story others are living? Are we adding to the noise, forcing false emotions, or faithfully serving the storyteller and the audience? I've got these ideas swirling, and they'll come in for a landing next time. But for now, I want to thank Dan for his time, his transparency, and for his years being such a generous spirit. The work he and Matthew Nelson are doing with The Chosen is so good, but I do hope he gets around to that solo album sooner rather than later. In part two of this conversation, Matthew joins me to talk not only about his role in constructing the musical landscape for this surprisingly effective show, but we'll get to hear all about his intensely musical upbringing and the spiritual connection he feels with music. Next time on the True Tunes Podcast. do it for this episode of the true tunes podcast thank you of course to my brother bruce a brown for his incredible work in the producer's chair not only would i not be able to do this show without you bruce i'm not sure i would even want to i want to thank our new patreon supporters for their generous support our patrons get early access to higher quality audio files of each episode that they can download We also do some online meetups and more, and we'll soon have some Patreon-only swag available. If you'd like to support this show by joining our Patreon circle, you can find the link on the show notes page, or just go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. And thanks, of course, to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song, and thanks to The Chosen for letting us use so much music from the series. You can find a complete list of all of the music used on this episode and some cool photos and links on the show notes page at truetunes.com. Don't forget about joining our email list, following our weekly Spotify playlist, and telling your friends about this show. 
The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT thanking you for listening and inviting you to come on back. Peace. The time has come. 